The Gospel reading is from the book of Mark, chapter 9. It is printed on the back of your bulletin, or you can follow along in your two bottoms on page 820. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Word of God, word of life. Thanks be God. We'll read the preaching text right in the midst of the sermon today. So for now, let us pray. Heavenly Father, bless the words that I preach today and all of our ears as we listen. In Jesus' name, amen. So those of you who know me know that I love a good underdog story. Some of my favorite movies involve underdogs. Miracle, the story of the 1980 U.S. men's Olympic hockey team, which somehow defeated the mighty Soviet Union is currently ranked number one on Pastor Nate's favorite movies. Uh, a month or so ago, I watched the movie Overcomer. I think many of you saw that movie when I was in the theater. It tells the story of a, a young girl who overcomes asthma and some very difficult life circumstances to win a state cross-country championship and to find faith in the process. The movie that came most to mind this week, though, was the movie Rudy. How many of you have seen the movie Rudy? Okay, if you don't have your hand up, that's your homework. You have to see Rudy, okay? Rudy's the story of Daniel Rudiger, a boy who dreamed of playing football for Notre Dame, despite being five foot six and 165 pounds. And did I mention that his grades weren't that great either? But Rudy stuck with his dream and, in fact, eventually made his way into Notre Dame and onto the football team. Now, it didn't happen overnight. He had to attend a nearby community college and learn how to study to get into Notre Dame as a transfer student. And then he had to walk onto the football team and bust his butt every day at practice just to land a spot on the practice squad so he could show up and watch games on Saturday. But finally, Rudiger got to dress. He even played in the last game of his college career. And so his story has been an inspiration to anyone who has read Rudiger's book or seen the movie. You can't talk about underdogs without talking about Rudy. Well, today, I hope to add a name to your list of favorite underdogs, too. Today, we have an underdog story from the book of 1 Kings, chapter 18. The story of Elijah versus the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And I bet if I read just the first few verses of our reading today that you will see right away who this underdog is. So, chapter 18, starting with verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? He answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore have all Israel assemble for me at Mount Carmel, 
with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the Israelites and assembled the prophets at Mount Carmel. All right, so did you figure out who the underdog in the story is? It's Elijah, right? Right away, King Ahab points at Elijah and calls him the troubler of Israel. You see, for years, there had been a drought in Israel because God was mad at King Ahab and his faithlessness. But it was easier, it's always easier, it was easier for Ahab to blame Elijah, the messenger, right? than to take responsibility for his own actions and sinfulness. And we also see in these verses that though Elijah is the only prophet of the Lord, the prophets of the false god Baal number 450, and the prophets of Asherah number 400, in a street fight or a shouting contest, we know that Elijah would have no chance. But the question is, how will he do in this battle for truth? Let's read on and find out, continuing with verse 21. Elijah then came near to all the people and said, How long will you go on limping with two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. The people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets, number 450, let two bulls be given to us. Let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces, lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire is indeed God. All the people answered, well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many. Then call on the name of your God, but put no fire to it. So they took the bull that was given them, prepared it, and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, crying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no answer. They limped about the altar that they had made. So, right, the terms of the contest are laid out. Pretty simple rules. Put a burnt offering on the altar, but don't light the fire. Let the gods decide who is right. Whoever answers by fire will be God. And even though there were 450 of them, the prophets of Baal cannot make fire come down from heaven. And Elijah can't resist just a little teasing at this point, right? We call it trash talk in the field of play. So continuing with verse 27, At noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, surely he is a god. Either he's meditating, or he has wandered away, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. Then they cried aloud, and was their custom, they cut themselves with swords and lances until the blood gushed out over them. As midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice, no answer, and no response. 
right? So after hours of these extreme measures, including screaming and cutting themselves, these 450 prophets of Baal cannot make fire rain down from heaven. You see, even when hundreds of people agree on something wrong, it doesn't make it right. So Elijah steps forward now with the truth. Verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come closer to me. And the people came closer to him. First, he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel should be your name. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. Then he made a trench around the altar, large enough to contain two measures of seed. Next he put the wood in order, cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood. He said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. Then he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. Again, he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time so that the water ran all around the altar and filled the trench with water. At the time of the offering of the oblation, the prophet Elijah came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your bidding. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, and the dust, and even licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord indeed is God. The Lord indeed is God. My friends, hear the word of the Lord today. Truth wins. God's love and hope wins, always. Right? It might take a while, and even after his victory on Mount Carmel, Elijah had to fear for his life. But God is always with us. And his truth, hope, love, and joy will never be defeated. The foes in our lives will not prevail. Now for many of you, the foes of this world are highly personal ones. You face personal foes in your life in the form of drug or alcohol addiction, bitter family feuds, unemployment, marital strife, or other personal struggles that eat at you, pound at you, relentlessly fighting you day after day. And we can certainly understand this concept of foes in a collective way too. Together we face terrible evils in this world in the form of poverty at home and around the world. A farm crisis right here in our region, a national debt that continues to climb. We face political turmoil over issues of immigration and impeachment. We face foes like bigotry and, and bullying and, and the ongoing threat of war and conflict in the Middle East. And of course the greatest foe around us is Satan himself, who plagues us with his greatest weapon of all, death. We fear this foe so much that we can barely bring ourselves to utter its name. We say things like, passed away, kicked the bucket, bought the farm, whatever that means, or even use more churchy phrases like, entered into eternal glory. 
But named or not, this foe, death, is a powerful force which sends chills of fear up and down our spine. All these forces, which seek to enslave us, capture us, torment us, and crush us, fill us with hopelessness and despair, and they're all around us. When it comes to life and death, we are underdogs, for sure. But like Elijah on Mount Carmel, don't let the apparent odds fool you, because truth always wins. It won in Elijah's day, and 700 years later, truth in the person of Jesus Christ won too. They called Jesus a troublemaker also. They wanted to kill him too, and they did. But the powers of sin and death did not win for good. Three days later, Jesus rose from death, and this risen Lord Jesus now sits at God's very right hand, promising to usher in the fullness of God's kingdom to believers like you and me. But we do not need to wait until the end of time for this kingdom to be ours. The last line of a mighty fortress, a hymn of Martin Luther that we sang last Sunday, gets it right. The kingdom's ours forever. Not the kingdom will be ours forever. The kingdom is ours forever. Already ours because of the victory over all worldly powers, including sin, death, and the devil won by God through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The kingdom is ours forever. Which reminds me of another set of words we use around here every week. The kingdom is ours, wrote Luther. Thine is the kingdom, we pray in the Lord's Prayer, which is exactly right. The kingdom is ours because it is thine, it is God's. The kingdom, which is this world, the world to come, all it is, belongs to God, not to the foes and demons. Those powers may fight mightily. They may wound and maim. They may bring terror and peril and nightmarish fear, but nothing belongs to them. It all belongs to God. And this gracious God freely gives it all to his children. This is what makes us together the saints of God that today's festival observes, sharing that status with all past, present, and future believers who have been rescued from their personal and cosmic foes, brought into Jesus' loving arms. And joy of joys, as we wait for our faith to be sight, we rejoice that we are set free by our God to battle long odds in this world right now. It seems that the political differences of our culture will never be worked out. It seems like the church is slowly wasting away into irrelevance. It seems like hatred and bigotry are going to win the day. But friends, get out there. Speak the word of truth in love. Live the truth in love, for Christ is with you. The odds may seem long, but by the power of Jesus, never count the underdog out. Amen.